Section 4 of The Nature and Authority of Conscience by Rufus Jones. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. Chapter 3 The Nature and Scope of Conscience, Part 2. Every analysis of conscience reveals an element in it which cannot be explained by anything else, any more than the taste of sugar, or the smell of a rose, or the perception of redness can be explained in terms of anything else. There is an elemental aspect which could not be derived or acquired. The categorical distinction of right and wrong which conscience voices may possibly aid survival, but in any case it does not get its lofty place in human life on the ground of its survival value. Its origin in us appears to be due to the fundamental fact that a person is an ideal-forming being. He always extends his world in ideal directions. A person is never confined to the world of things as they are. He is never limited to objects that are given in experience. He always transcends and sees beyond the facts and items which his senses present. This creative, idealizing tendency is one of the most unique and original traits in us one of the deepest facts of personality, as well as one of the most mysterious. Our driving forces are to be found in our instincts and emotions, but our ideals are our directive powers. They organize the instincts and emotions. They raise and transform them so that they are no longer instincts in the blind and primitive sense. They cease also now to be mainly egoistic and self-seeking, and yet their energy and effectiveness are greatly heightened as they come to be expanded and transformed through ideals. Our moral grandeur springs from this capacity of ours to live beyond and to outrun anything which the world of experience gives us, and with this idealizing capacity, the power to look before and after, is linked an inevitable sense of obligation to act in conformity with what the soul sees ought to be. It is a normal feature of personality to live not only in reference to considerations of prudence and foresight, but also to live in reference to an ideal spectator, to do right, even when the world is not looking on or viewing the deed. We assert by an irresistible compulsion the incomparable worth of our personal ideals and the moral insights which attach to them. We build on a head of experience and fashion the inner world that ought to be, and this vision makes us dissatisfied with anything that comes short of our ideal good. Some persons, no doubt, possess this power of transcending the actual more strongly than do others. The reference to an ideal spectator is weak in some and powerful in others. The appeal from what is here and now to that which ought to be does not operate alike in all bosoms. Plato, with his symbol of Gyges' ring, has expressed the view that the many do right because they fear consequences. This ring enabled the possessor of it to become invisible at will. He could always escape notice, and could therefore pursue his pleasures and achieve his ends without being observed or caught. Could anybody be found who might own this extraordinary ring with perfect moral safety? 
Are there persons who would take no advantages of the privileges of its magic? Plato knows at least one such person. He has drawn the portrait of a moral genius whose supreme prayer was for inward beauty, and who took his hard course of action not out of fear of any kind of consequences, but in order to conform with a heavenly pattern in his soul. It is probably true that conscience rises to its august height only in persons who may be called spiritual geniuses. We do not estimate the significance of music by the performance on the Indian tom-tom. We find it revealed in Mozart, or some other outstanding creator. We do not judge the scope of art by the Maori carvings on a walrus tusk. We see it at its full glory in the Sistine Madonna, or in Michelangelo's Moses. So, too, we shall never apprehend the nature of conscience if we study it only as an anthropological emotion. We see what it means, and we discover its full implications in persons of marked moral profundity. There is an underived ethical core in us, or at least in some of us, which gives us a fixity of soul for that which ought to be. This elemental basis of our conscience cannot be traced to any physical origin, it cannot be reduced to a biological function, it cannot be explained in utilitarian terms. It attaches to our deepest spiritual being, our inalienable tendency to form ideals and to feel the imperative call of what ought to be. Its development can be traced, its origin cannot be traced. The elemental distinction of right and wrong is presupposed in every appreciation of moral quality, just as every judgment of beauty presupposes an appreciation of beauty. The structural distinction of right and wrong is an endowment of reason which cannot be identified with anything else or traced to any naturalistic origin. It is that basic foundation of the soul which the mystics call synteresis, or junction of the soul with God. It is what Kant calls the categorical imperative, or the soul's fundamental assertion of a distinction between right and wrong. It is so essential to a rational being that, in denying it, you tacitly affirm it. And when it appeared, the race first began to be human. Man emerged. Adam was born. Every little creature in the myriad hosts of life's immense output is different in some respect from every other. Every tiny being that gets born has some slight mark of uniqueness. This fact, a fact which we do not explain, is what makes life a varying affair. Every germ in the enormous fecundity of nature has its own irreducible peculiarity. Somewhere, sometime, in the great stream, there came a being that was unique in this, that he did not live merely by fact and act for the sake of consequences, but he felt the moral worth of certain acts and could recognize an ought. He judged his conduct by an ideal which outran his deed. There have been many crises in the history of evolution moments when something qualitatively new appeared, and of which no exhaustive psychological explanation can be given. 
mutations are not only unpredictable but they are inexplicable in terms of the environment the birth of self-consciousness is one of these crises the appreciation of beauty is another the birth of religion the soul's consciousness of a great companion is another the appearance of conscience the distinction of moral right and wrong is another it is as original and irreducible as the consciousness of up and down or of before and after in a word it is as underived from anything else as the perception of time and space is all knowledge of concrete times and spaces implies a susceptibility to time and space already in the capacity of the mind that perceives without an underived distinction of before and after i could never learn about times and without the capacity for within and without and up and down i could never get the idea of particular spaces the idea of space is presupposed in all experiences of spaces the mind of a rational being comes already equipped with these essential conditions of knowledge these capacities for experience which are filled with content by actual experience so too a person must be susceptible to the meaning of ought before ever he can learn from experience what is right and wrong in a given concrete situation the capacity for duty is thus native and original a condition of all moral appreciation our judgment upon the particular definite things that are right and wrong is always colored by experience that is to say the formation of our actual standards the creation of our concrete conscience is an immense social process as i shall endeavor to show if this view is correct we discover why conscience is so imperative it is an irreducible fact of reason itself using reason in the broad sense which has become familiar since kant it cannot be eliminated or destroyed without abolishing rationality itself it is bound up with the very nature of reason as is our absolute certainty of mathematical truth or as is the inevitable idea that an effect must have a cause deny it ignore it disobey it transgress it it still confronts one as unsuppressed and absolute as ever note i have been influenced here and elsewhere by the lectures of my harvard teacher professor george herbert palmer this view of conscience is no less a divine reality than Berkeley's view or the intuition theory would make it only its divine quality is not to be secured by isolating it and dividing it off from man's essential nature we cannot prove a revelation or pronouncement to be divine by merely insisting that it is unconnected and unrelated with anything in our finite experience or by saying ever so emphatically that it has been injected into time from a realm beyond time the divine is not confined and limited to another world than ours it can be a fact and quality of our own essential life and if we are to find it anywhere we must find it here 
draw if thou canst the magic line severing rightly his from thine which is human which divine this fundamental distinction of right and wrong this compelling sense of obligation seems to be the very mark and badge of man's origin from a deeper spiritual universe or at least of his present relation with such a universe as a child bears forever in his body the marks of his origin from his mother so this moral capacity marks the point of juncture with a spiritual realm from which we have come and with which we are still connected the beyond is within we are embedded in a larger consciousness than that bounded by the margins of our finite self we come here upon the central fact which makes man an ethical person in his essential nature as a self-conscious being looking before and after and judging his deeds in reference to a world as it ought to be man is always more than finite he is over finite we can and often do treat the individual as a finite unit for practical purposes but to do so is to reduce him to a static abstract thing quite unlike the living concrete self of real inner experience he is now a sundered fragment and not the organic whole we know as a spiritual person the latter always involves and manifests an imminent principle which transcends the finite fragment we look down on our fragment self from the watch-tower of our wider larger self and approve it or disapprove it in the light of an ideal which sweeps far on ahead of anything the finite fragmentary self has ever experienced this individual phantom self as coleridge called it is forever set in and organic with a more than its own tiny domain the sense of imperfection which marks all our experience the glory of the unattained which attracts us the unstilled desire for the beyond the hints of occasion infinite that keep us alert for moving goals all have their ground in this indissoluble junction of our nature with the spiritual whole in which our consciousness is set but at the same time there is a large temporal and historical factor in every man's conscience as it is formed and filled by experience and education it bears and must bear the marks of the social group in which it has been developed it is influenced as all our ideals are and as personality itself is by the social life of which we are an organic part edmund burke was right when he talked of the social conscience as the bank and capital of nations and of ages we are woven inextricably into the fabric of some living group we catch a thousand features of our life through unconscious imitation we take over from our social group the very language through which we form and express all our ideas it is here in this indispensable social environment that we discover our primitive desires and that we make our earliest experiments in finding out what we want and what we do not want one of the greatest experiments in this human venture of ours tones looks and gestures of approval and disapproval 
work powerfully upon the acutely suggestible infant mind family customs personal influence the appeal of rewards and punishments the illumination of discipline on the plastic mind are profoundly formative during the long period of helplessness and dependence the child slowly learns what the race has learned play art literature religion begin now to make their immense contribution to his inner life and he becomes acute and sensitive to the requirements of the society of which he is an organic member this explains why in the early stages conscience is negative the individual instinctively follows custom so long as he goes along with habitual tendencies he is unconscious of any guiding as is the case with all subconscious functions but let a subjective inclination push him in a direction contrary to custom and immediately self-consciousness is awake and a collision or conflict appears within so long as there is conformity conscience slumbers the moment the individual asserts himself against the social group conscience is wide awake his deed reveals dangers and gives him trouble duty at this stage arises as a limitation of individual impulse the primitive moral consciousness is knit in a close solidarity with the life of the tribe the self in the early stage is hardly differentiated as a separate fact it is a living cell in a tribal organism which is the real unit hebrew story is rich with material bearing on this negative and tribal conscience we see in the old testament how in generation after generation the individual was merged into the corporate life of the racial group and how difficult it was for the individual to pursue a course which conflicted with established law and custom greek literature reveals a similar custom the spartan soldiers at thermopylae felt they had no private individual choice they were merged into the life of the tribe tell sparta you saw us lying here their epitaph says in obedience to our country's call socrates with all his prophetic leadership to which i have referred in an earlier section was deeply immersed in the social life and custom of his race his divine voice is in all reported instances a restraining checking guide when escape was possible he remained in prison and accepted the hemlock in unquestioning obedience to the laws of his country note this attitude of obedience is the subject of plato's crito the hebrew prophets however and the greek tragedians take us up to a different moral level here we have a profound conflict of duties and conscience appears as a positive affirmative pushing force it becomes a silent but august revelation of an ideal course of action as soon as personal life grows rich complex and reflective the simple primitive instincts no longer work as blind unconscious motor forces as they were at first they are organized now into wider systems of emotions and sentiments they become infused with intelligence and guided and controlled by reason they minister to the higher ends and ideals of life and serve to fulfill spiritual values 
I am using sentiment, of course, in its nobler meaning, as the best modern writers on the emotions have taught us to use the word. Sentimental and sentimentality have acquired an undesirable reputation as something soft and flabby, but we must not allow the associations formed around those words to keep us from using the word sentiment in its true and proper sense. Every sentiment includes in a single unified system a complex of instinct, emotion, thought, and will. It forms a tiny sphere of its own within the wider life of the person. Embedded in it, controlled by it, are instincts which by themselves would be blind and egoistic. They are, however, raised and transmuted by the organizing energy of the system in which they are merged. This is the way in which all spiritual achievements are made. Instincts are not killed, they are not eliminated, they are ruled, subordinated, and made to minister to purposes and aims that reach beyond the welfare of the single self in which the instinct was born. Wherever love and loyalty come into play, a system of this type is found, a system of rationalized or idealized desires is created. Such a system, with its inner springs of love and loyalty, makes conquest of egoistic traits, and brings into operation a spirit of devotion, dedication, self-sacrifice. All sentiments of this loftier sort reach out beyond the interests of the individual, in modern phrase they are over-individual. They have to do with the self plus its wider relationships, its relationship with other persons, with beauty, with truth, with goodness, with a communion of saints, with God. Under the sway of an idealizing sentiment it becomes natural for one to live, or even to die, for the end upon which the sentiment is focused and around which it is organized. Nature itself thus becomes spiritualized and transformed through the transmutation of desires. The whole level of the human aim is raised. Action no longer centers on mere survival of existence. The person under the sway of an organizing sentiment is absorbed in the triumph of ideal values which are worth infinitely more than houses or lands or body or bread. Conscience on this higher level, as the voice of the ideal self, operates more often unconsciously or subconsciously than consciously. Its decisions seem instinctive, second nature. They are arrived at by processes that appear intuitive. That is, however, not because conscience was put ready-made into the individual at birth. It is because the central ideals in us are deeper than reflection reaches. Beneath the stream shallow and light of what we say we feel, beneath the stream as light of what we think we feel, there flows with noiseless current, obscure and deep, the central stream of what we feel indeed. Note Matthew Arnold. It is also because action under the sway of ideals and sentiments has formed habits and tendencies which fit the direction in which our personality is moving. But there often appears to be a rivalry 
among the ideals which control us and shape our deeds there are many possible ruling systems of sentiments and the world has never fully agreed upon an unvarying order of their importance love of family love of friend love of country love of church love of race love of truth love of god which of all these is the highest loyalty and the most sacred system of desire or of sentiment temperament education character will in large degree determine in our personal lives in which direction our ideals will organize our sentiments and so form the dominating passion of our souls the lover the patriot the martyr the saint have each felt clearly that life came to its consummate glory in the end for which they severally lived and died there is no arbiter who can settle this question between ends which are all good in themselves but nothing surely can be higher or diviner than a life organized under the ideal which christ has revealed and fused with his spirit as i have said in a former section his way of life reveals individual conscience in its most acute and exalted form it does not mean that self is obliterated it does not mean that life ceases to be this worldly and becomes otherworldly it rather means that the soul's vision opens out upon the reality of a god of perfect goodness and love joining himself with us and forever needing us to complete his own purposes it means going out to the tasks of life with faith in the complete triumph of love a readiness to go to all limits of suffering and crucifixion for this faith of love it means an overmastering conviction that human lives united to him and dedicated as he was to love can help bring into being a kingdom of god a brotherhood of those who live by truth and love to live christ's way of life means dying to selfish and utilitarian aims through inner assurance of fellowship with him and with the whole human family in love in faith in life and in service to have these aspects merged into one ruling system of thought and emotion and will is what i mean by the sentiment of loyalty to christ which spontaneously reveals itself in the conscience when the moment of choice comes it makes all other goods and all other ends appear inferior and subordinate in comparison it holds the soul like adamant and is as near to an absolute authority as one can find in this world of change and process but it now appears that this positive type of affirmative conscience the creation of the higher sentiments and the voice of the ideal self in us is no longer stern and hard cold and foreign a fusion of commands and terrors a rod to check the erring and reprove a certain sense of awe will always attend as is fitting this lofty function of the soul the forward way of love as it separates us from many things we should like to keep will be in the words which edmund spencer used reverently of his wife our dear dread but conscience on this higher level ceases to be an alien voice 
a threatening lawgiver, reproving and overawing us, it becomes rather the deep groundswell of a whole unified, organized, personal self, moving toward the end for which it dimly feels it was made. It operates less and less explicitly, reflectively, as a conscious judgment, backed and buttressed by effort. It works more and more as a directing force below the threshold, a new and transformed kind of instinct, an instinct which has been created rather than blindly received. It is a moral dexterity of soul, and yet almost possessing the well-known unerring accuracy of instinct. It has close affinity to the higher order of ascetic taste. In fact, the greatest of the Greeks identified beauty and moral goodness. Their loftiest word for personal character was the composite word beautiful good. As my old teacher, Professor G. H. Palmer, has finally said, the most triumphantly beautiful thing in the world is a good life. The Stoic and Puritan moral harshness is here transcended, as is also utterly transcended the calculating, prudential regard for consequences. Freedom and joy are gloriously realized. Duty wears the Godhead's most benignant grace, nor know we anything so fair as is the smile upon her face. I conclude, then, that conscience is both divine and human. In origin it goes back to the very moral nature of God himself. It always comes from beyond the isolated person, the fragmentary self, for in the depth of our being we are never sundered from God. We are at least at one inner point conjunct with that person who is the life of our lives. For this reason some kind of moral ideal is inherent in the nature of man, but on the other hand all moral ideals, i.e. all the calls of conscience, have a temporal history. They are slowly formed and shaped by the gains and testings of the ages. The race discovers what in the long run will and what will not work well for humanity or for a smaller social group of humanity, what destroys and what constructs personality, what enlarges and what restricts the life of the group itself. The guiding formative influence of the group in the primitive stage of the race and of the individual can hardly be overstated. But this must not blind us to the fact that conscience, as soon as it rises as a fact, is, first, last, and always, an individual thing. The phrases social conscience and group conscience are very common, and are very often used as though corporate conscience were an actual reality. The words, however, have only a figurative meaning. The only consciousness which psychology can recognize is consciousness appearing in individual persons. Many such persons may and do act in intimate concert, and join in common pursuits and purposes, but even so they do not fuse into a literal organism with a unified consciousness of its own over and above the individual consciousness. If that is true of consciousness in general, it is no less true of the particular aspect of consciousness which we call 
conscience. The only center of experience is the individual mind. The only point at which the distinction of right and wrong is brought to focus is in the inner life of the person. Society finds its voice and discovers its direction in the consciences of individuals in the many centers of personal experience. Reasoning, suggestion, imitation, contagion of ideas are no doubt real forces which tend to carry one person's thoughts and ideals into the many lives which compose a group but there are no forces which compel the individual to adopt an ideal however forcibly it may be proclaimed the individual holds the key of his destiny in his own hand and no organism no group no corporate life of any kind can by causal forces overwhelm and determine the personal will great moral geniuses appear from time to time who push the common ideal of goodness a stage further on and by degrees the whole race is raised to that height hastings rashtel has well said in the ethical region men of science are beginning to say in the biological region also nature takes more leaps and longer leaps than a priori evolutionary thinkers like to admit and the form which such leaps assume in the moral region is most commonly to be found in the appearance of great personalities men's capacities for ethical judgment vary enormously and average men have to rely to a very large extent upon the judgment of the gifted few the prophet or great personality may be looked upon as one in whom conscience has attained an exceptional development Note, conscience and christ pages twenty one and twenty two the hardest issues the most tragic collisions that ever come are the conflicts between the old fixed order the status quo embodied in the social group and the forward-pushing ideal embodied in the moral reformer whether he be gifted as prophet or genius or whether he be only an ordinary person who cannot make his individual vision fit with the moral residuum from the past on the lower scale morality as its name suggests was conformity with the accumulated wisdom and customs of the group on the higher level it becomes a solitary adventure a heroic faith in a vision of what ought to be though it is not yet actual anywhere on sea or land narrow creeds of right and wrong must yield and give way before the unmeasured thirst for good incarnate in some brave soul who goes forth to try his soul and to lift the common standard as fast as any moral gain is won it is wrought out into forms of social institutions it is embodied in art in literature in law in religion in social etiquette in the system of education of the period in national hopes and ideals each person thus forms his own moral ideal the groundswell of his own inward voice of what is right for him in the social environment into which he is born he is from his earliest days a member of the society already moralized a fellow-citizen of a state in which morality is more or less objectified and made visible 
he must form his own moral ideals by means of the moral attainments of the race and these ideals will always have the mark and brand of a temporal epoch and there will always be a local coloring upon them but he may as has been said and in fact he should transcend the common level of his time and push the moral goal beyond any previous attainments though it must be along lines already potential and his ideal his attainments must be tried out in the siftings and testings of social history conscience as we have seen in its loftiest stage is no longer negative it affirms a unique personal life it has a positive aspect it is the knowledge of a higher will than that of our momentary isolated self it is the voice of our ideal self our complete self our real self laying its call upon the will this voice this call comes up out of the deep for the ideal which a man has and by which he shapes his life is as i have said subconscious rather than explicit and thought out but it is not something foreign to the man himself it is not something external to him it is not some one particular instinct among other instincts it is the complete self voicing its ideals and exerting its sway over passion and impulse and momentary self and courses of action which fall below our vision it forms itself slowly under education and environment as the character forms and it is unique and august because it is the deepest self rising into consciousness and asserting itself it is the true self vocal if this is a sound view we see that the moral standard is always being made never final it shows too why we do not all have the same conscience there will always be the personal element present for each man's ideal has formed under particular circumstances has aspects that are unique and has been slowly shaped by experience but conscience is more than subjective opinion or individual caprice a person's conscience to be sound must have imbibed the spirit of the social group past and present living and dead in which it was formed and if in any particular it is unique or peculiar it should be by transcending the realized morality of the group on lines already forecast by past experience though we cannot make the immense assertion that conscience is absolutely infallible and a precise guide under any and every circumstance of life it is nevertheless the surest moral authority within our reach a voice to be implicitly obeyed in the crisis of an action it is our highest guide no command on earth can take precedence of it nothing more autonomous or more worthy of obedience can be discovered but even so it must not be allowed to crystallize or to become a static habitual moral form the pharisee the inquisitor and the bigot are appalling illustrations of the dangers that beset the arrested conformed conscience even when it is honest it needs constant re-examination and revision 
the influences which remake and revitalize it must have no terminus there must always be adjustments to new light a healthy living response to fresh truth and a continual transformation of conscience in relation to the growing revelation of god it must be under the watchful guardianship of the awakened and enlightened spirit conscience is thus like the mariner's chronometer while he is in port he tests it out by all the expedients known to the science of the clockmaker he perceives and realizes that it is subject to slight variations but when he is at sea he implicitly trusts it reckons it as reliable as the movements of orion or arcturus and sails his ship by its pronouncements one other danger must be guarded against or at least reduced to its lowest minimum i mean the danger of self-casuistry few things in human experience are more subtle than are the ingenious psychological methods and processes by which we often defeat ideal courses of life by the use of expedients and labels to excuse a choice of the least ideal alternative no one can arrive at a decision where there is a conflict of issues until he succeeds in making one alternative fill the focal center of attention and so dominate consciousness the complicated process of deliberation which constitutes the main drama of our inner life is an oscillation of mind from one alternative to another in the search for decisive reasons reasons which can prevail and in this state of suspense while the search is going on we are strongly prone to ease the strained situation by finding heads or labels under which to classify our motives so that they will satisfy our reason cut-and-dried maxims fine-sounding formulae authoritative principles work almost like magic here before one knows it one is swept on toward a momentous decision under the spell of a rubric the subtle casuistry works both ways it may furnish a pretext for evading the call of the ideal or it may again supply a ground for stubborn allegiance to what is called an ideal while in fact the other alternative is really higher there is thus no shortcut no labor-saving device no magic contrivance that can save the soul from the stern moral effort the slow dead heave of the will that in a crisis puts all the accumulation of character all the gathered wisdom of life all one's faith in the eternal realities into the scale for the venture the last place of refuge amid the confusion of the world is this inner citadel of the soul we owe almost everything to the larger society of which we are an organic part almost everything but there is one thing we can never surrender barter or disobey at the command of any social authority whatever the august voice within us End of chapter 3, The Nature and Scope of Conscience, part 2. And end of The Nature and Authority of Conscience by Rufus Jones. Read by John Greenman.